How are you? Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Are you doing well? Yeah, good, good. All right. Not that I expected more, but hey, we're in the middle of the summer. Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you, go with me. We're asking the question this summer um, over and over. Hopefully by now, if you've been with us, uh, you're getting used to this question, and here it is. What will it take for us to see our city transformed by the goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ? What will it take for you to see your home? Maybe it's your community, your cul-de-sac, your town, our city, our world. What will it take for us to see it transformed by the goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ? One of the reasons I love the book of Acts is that we see how God transforms places, people, neighborhoods, homes, and he does it over and over again by pursuing people where they are regardless of who they are and in spite of what they've done. The ancient world, we see this, was transformed one person at a time, one man, one woman, one child at a time whose lives were turned upside down by the beauty of Jesus's mercy and goodness. We're going to look at another one of those encounters today and chapter 9 of Luke's letter where we're introduced to a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who for the first part of his life was a vicious opponent of Christianity until he encountered Jesus and became the most influential leader in all of church history. And one of the reasons I love his story is because I believe everyone in the room this morning can identify it with it in one way or the other. You see, for some of us in the room, we'll identify with him in this way. Some of us will identify with the fact that Saul was an overachiever in every way, socially, politically, spiritually, intellectually. He was an overachiever. He stood above the people around him. Maybe you can identify with that. I cannot, okay? I've always been a JV kind of guy. I'll give you an example, okay? In sports, in eighth grade football, I uh, made the team by the mercy of God, and then uh, all season long got in five plays, eighth grade football. Now, if you know anything about eighth grade football, you know it takes a remarkable amount of talent to only make it on the field five times, because they have this thing called special teams, which is for people with special talents, all right, that only get in on those particular plays when really, okay, someone's going to tackle the guy with the ball, and it doesn't depend a lot on you. And so, yet, I only got in five plays, okay? five plays. I think in eighth grade, I was about four foot seven, 95 pounds, all right? By my junior year of high school, I'm playing on the varsity team, but I, that's, don't be fooled by that. I never really played. Um, I got a giant hole in the side of my mouth because of all the sunflower seeds that I chewed sitting on the bench, okay? You can chew a lot of, you can chew a lot of seeds, in nine innings, when you're by yourself with a couple of buddies on the bench, all right? And so by the end of the season, I'm, you know, having to deal with that. My claim to fame when it comes to sports, there are two times I made it into the postseason, okay? Um, the first time was in eighth grade when I was the water boy for the varsity team. And we make it to the regional tournament and we won. And I'm in the back of the bus with the team singing, we are the champions, my friend. You know, I just remember this moment because it's my moment of glory. And then my junior year, of, so my senior year of golf came along. It's the only time I've ever played on a varsity team, okay? And I was the best of the worst golfers to get the fifth bag on the team, if you know varsity golf. And so we travel, we make it, our team's pretty good. Um, I'm not, but we make it to the regional tournament. Uh, we shoot 36 holes that day. The last 18, if you know anything about golf, here you go. I shot, you ready for this? A 137. 
all right? If you don't know anything about golf, just pay attention to the laughter around you. That's not good. It's like bowling a 12 or something like that. I don't know. With bumpers, okay? Yes! I bowl 137. Fortunately, they brush off the table the worst score on the team, see? Little to no impact. And yet that's kind of been, I'm just a JV kind of guy. But Saul was a varsity kind of guy, and some of you are varsity kind of folks, and you'll identify with him in that way. Listen to his pedigree in Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, if I have reason for confidence in, in, in their own efforts, if others have reason, I, he says, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. How about you? I don't know. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault, okay? If you put that in writing, and it's going to be read by millions and billions of people throughout history, if you're going to put that there, you better be for real, Okay? How many of you have obeyed the law without faults? And if you say you have, you're lying, so you already broke it, okay? And Saul says, I have, and he's making this point. He says, I, I stood above all of my peers and all of my critics. I cared so deeply about the law and observance to it that everybody esteemed me as the model religious leader. It's a member of the Pharisees, this religious sect that took the Jewish law, some 600 laws, and built additional traditions and customs and rituals around them so that they would not break the original law. So for example, you know, if you've ever been in the store and you go shopping for clothes and you come out and you begin to unpack your bags and you realize that there's a pack of socks you didn't buy in the bag, anyone this ever happened to? Okay. Or moms, dads, you're out shopping and you get out to the car and you realize your two-year-old swiped a pack of gum when you weren't looking. Has that ever happened? A little thief from birth, you know? <laughs> you're like, how do we get this gum, okay? And you're in this moment weighing, you've got three kids in tote and a two-year-old and it's hot, it's been a long day. You're like, do I take the socks back? Do I take the gum back? And some of you are like Saul, you're like, yep, you're right back in there, right to the return desk. And then some of you are like me and you're like, ah, I don't, no one will know, okay? It's a pack of socks, pack of gum, anyone like that? Okay, you've taken the gum, all right? Three of you, okay, great. We'll have a small group, all right? For us sinners, and then the rest of you are like Saul, okay? Just totally observing the law. You're so full of it, you're so full of it. <laughs> okay, Saul would have taken back the socks, all right? He would have returned the gum because he was strict in his observance of the law, and yet, I want, here's what I want you to see. In spite of his knowledge of God and passionate observance for law, I want you to consider the person he had become. At the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, Luke introduces us to Saul when Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church, proclaims the gospel, is accused by his religious Jewish opponents, is condemned, they take him out in the middle of the street, the religious leaders begin to shed their cloaks, pick up stones, and begin to pelt Stephen's body with rocks, and he dies. The man at whom they laid their cloaks, Luke writes, was Saul, who oversaw the first killing of a Christian. 
The beginning of chapter 8, we see that this ignites a wave of persecution in the early church, whereby Saul systematically hunts down in prisons and kills Christians for their loyalty to Jesus. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 8, it says that he was so set on destroying the church. And that word destroy is only used once in all of the New Testament. And it's a word that describes a wild boar ravaging a vineyard. Or a a person who ravages, a wild boar who ravages a person's body. And this is Saul set to destroy, to ravage, to obliterate the church. He was a man on one hand of religious devotion and yet his life was filled with self-pride, hatred, prejudice, vengeance, and fury. And still, get this, still, Jesus pursued, transformed, and used this man's life for the glory of Christ when his life was a complete and total mess. You get that? You see that? And that's going to encourage some of us today, isn't it? Because some of us in the room, this is how we identify with Saul. You come in this morning and you're like, yeah, I can identify with that. My life's a mess, right? If God knew where I've been, if God saw, as if, as if he doesn't, but these are the things that play through our mind, if God saw what's going on in my life, if God saw my addiction, God saw my anger problem, if God was aware of this systemic private sin that's going on in my life that's hurting relationships or confidence or peace or joy or community, whatever it might be. If God saw this, there's no way he would have me. There's no way he would forgive me. There's no way he would do anything significant through my life. And isn't it true that those are the tapes that play across the waves of our heart at times? Isn't that true? And here's what I want you to see. That through Saul's story, we find that God masters in turning our messes into masterpieces. God masters in turning your mess into a masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, God created us anew in Christ Jesus to be the masterpieces he created us. He created us. He prepared us to be so that you and I can do the good works that he had planned long in advance. God takes our messes and turns them into master pieces. Now, some of us in the room, we look at our lives and we think, you know what, I'm not really all that bad. My life's fairly put together. I've, you know, I've never rebelled. I grew up around the church. I've always kind of stayed close to home. I know the scriptures. I've been a part of studies. I've, kind of my life is it's pretty good right now, but here's what I want you to see. Knowing about God and knowing God are two very different things. It's possible to have a a wide knowledge of who God is and yet not to have a heart knowledge in such a way that it changes the person that you are. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3 verse 6. He says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. You know what he's saying? It is possible to be zealous for God without loving or caring for the people he cares about. And there are a lot of Saul's sitting in churches around the country, around the world, who on the outside seem remarkably spiritual. But on the inside, their hearts are filled with self-righteousness and pride and biting criticism. And I can say this because I've been there. I'm a recovering legalist at heart. For years, you know, on one hand, I knew about Jesus, to classes about Jesus, had knowledge about who Jesus was. 
But on the same hands, deep in my heart, there was brokenness. There was criticism. There was self-righteousness. I lived a duplicitous life, hiding sin and habit in my life that was destroying me from the inside out while promoting an image of something else. And maybe that's your story. Maybe you work hard to keep up a facade so that others can think of you in one way, but deep down you know that you're zealous for the rules but not for Jesus. Like you know you've got a knowledge of God, but you don't have a heart for him. And if that's you, I want you to be encouraged. In the same way that God pursued Saul on an obscure road when he was set against him. In the same way that God pursued Saul in his overconfidence in his goodness, Saul, God pursues us in our brokenness as well. His relentless mercy is limitless. We see through Saul's story, he turns our messes into masterpieces. He is not finished with you yet. Now here's the thing we'll see in the text. It's one thing to know that God pursues you. It's one thing to know that Jesus does not give up on you. It's another thing to know that uh, he can turn the mess of your life into a masterpiece. But here's the deal. He cannot do it until you stop running from him. Look at the text, verse 3. Chapter 9, as he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are, why are you, Lord, or, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, I want to unpack this for a moment, Okay. Because I'm guessing the majority of you did not encounter Jesus the first time while you were commuting into Omaha and he blinded you in your little civic, okay? I'm guessing that didn't happen. So I want to bring this to bear a little bit in our stories. Saul's on a road to Damascus to hunt down in prison and kill Christians and Jesus blinds him. Here's what's happening. In the moment he becomes physically blind, spiritually he begins to see and he addresses Jesus for the first time. Now, the scriptures say again and again that unless our hearts encounter Christ in a redemptive way, we will be spiritually blind, which is just a metaphor to say that without the mercy of Christ opening our hearts to perceive or to understand or to engage the person of Jesus, we will remain blind. We won't be able to engage him. We won't be able to see him. We won't be able to relate to him. The Bible describes this as spiritual blindness. I've spoken to countless young men and women in my time in ministry who have said something to the effect like this, this effect. They've said, Jed, you know what? I grew up around the church. I grew up listening to people talk about God, but I never knew him. I grew up reading the scriptures, but my heart was unmoved by them. I grew up in a local church setting, but my, my life was never engaged by the king of the church, Jesus that's spiritual blindness. What they're saying is my heart was untouched, it was unmoved. But then here's what they say. But Jed, there was a day that the gospel became alive in my heart. And for the first time I saw that my heart began to beat for him. And not only did I see that I was loved by him eternally and completely, 
but I realized that I wanted to love him back. That's spiritual sight. A heart that beats for Jesus. And you and I cannot accomplish that on our own. The gospel writer John said that Jesus came as a light to the world to show us who God is and to open our hearts to want to relate to him. He'll go on to say that the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict or to press our hearts to understand our need for Christ. He convicts us in the area of sin. He convicts us in the area of the fact that Christ is righteous and we are not. He convicts us of the fact that apart from the mercy of Christ, we stand before the throne of God and deserve the guilty verdict. But because of Christ, we are set free. And when your eyes begin to see that, the heart of your life, when you begin to realize that your eyes have opened, spiritually you have begun to see. Here's another way to know if you've begun to see and get spiritual sight. When, when Christ encounters your heart in a real way, you will begin to see the fullness of your sin like never before. You'll begin to wrestle with the reality of sin in your life. But here's the beautiful thing. You won't be crushed by it. Notice in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, um, Jesus says to Paul, or to Saul, excuse me, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Jesus doesn't say, Saul, you're breaking the law. He doesn't say, Saul, you're doing a lot of bad things. I wish you'd just stop doing them. He says, Saul, you're attacking me. You're offending me. You're hurting me. And Saul begins to see that his sin isn't simply a set of actions, but it's a posture against the rightful king of his life. I'll explain it this way. You know, with all the horrendous things that are happening in our country and around the world, if you're a headline watcher or you read about the news, tell me this, when you begin to read about these things and your heart begins to be moved by them, do you just push back from the table and say, oh, those are a lot of bad things. I wish that people would stop doing them. Do you simply say that man or that woman, what they did was wrong. It's just got to stop. Or when you read and see those things, is your heart moved? Is it gripped? Do you hurt? Do you almost feel as if their attack is a personal attack on you or the people that you love and care about who are nameless to you? It feels like an attack, doesn't it? Even on you. And the reason it does is because sin is not merely an action. It's a posture. It's an attack against the rightful king of our lives. And if we feel that way, imagine how Jesus must feel who created us in all of his glory to be beautiful inside and out, to love and delight in him with all that we are. And yet, instead of drawing near, we've walked away. Instead of loving him, we've abandoned him. Instead of having affection for him, we've attacked him with our lives. And so I see in my life, my lust, my greed, my stinginess, my bitterness, my anger, my self-righteousness is not only wrong, it's a wrong against Christ and all he created me to be. And a Christian is someone who hears Jesus say, like he said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you attacking me? You see, the gospel says that you and I are more sinful than we dared imagined. And yet we're more loved than we dared dreamed. 
You and I are more sinful and broken than we ever imagined, but you are more loved and cared for than you ever dreamed. And it is only when you see the horror of your sin, the ugliness of my sin, that we see and taste the beauty and the sweetness of Christ's mercy. And one of the ways that you'll know that your heart's being opened, that you've encountered Christ, is you'll begin to see your sin, but you'll taste the mercy of Christ that covers it over a thousand times. And your heart will be drawn to him. Paul writes about this as he goes on in Philippians 3. He says, I once thought all these things were valuable, my pedigree, my self-righteousness, my obedience to the law, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yet everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see what he says? He says, all of my sin was an attack against Christ, but now I realize because of Christ, I can draw near. I love him and I wanna love him more. So for his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. He says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself. Get this, depends on faith. He says, I count on Christ. I wanna ask you this morning, what are you counting on? What are you leaning on as you relate to God? What are you depending on? Some of us this morning are depending on our own goodness. We're depending on our own righteousness, our own attendance, our holiness, our observance to the law. You know how you'll know if this is true. If you're counting on your own goodness, you'll constantly look down your noses toward people who aren't as good as you. If you're counting on your own goodness, you'll constantly be sizing up people who don't look like you or believe like you or behave like you. And you know why we do that. You know why I've done that. Because deep in our hearts, we're so insecure before God that we've got to constantly step on other people's shoulders to propel ourselves before the throne of God, to raise ourselves up. And you know what this will lead to if this is true in your life? It will lead to insecurity and self-righteousness. It will lead to fear before the throne of God instead of freedom. It will lead to dread as you approach him rather than joy if you're throwing yourself on or counting on your own goodness. And if you recognize that's true today, if you see those things at work in your heart, Jesus would say, turn from them. This morning, repent of them. Say, Jesus, I no longer want to count on my own goodness. I want to discard it as garbage so that I might gain you. I throw myself on your mercy. Have you ever done that? Followers of Jesus, are you doing that regularly? It's not something we stop doing or only do once. Are you throwing yourself on the mercy of Jesus over and over and over again? You know how you'll know if you're counting on Jesus's goodness? If you're counting on Jesus's goodness, your heart will be humbled and soft. You'll see the reality of your sin, but you'll see the beauty of his goodness. You'll see that on the cross, Jesus gave his life to give you life. You'll see that Jesus was condemned to make you innocent. You'll see that he became an enemy of God when we were enemies to call us friends. You'll see that today, because of Christ, you can call out to him as a son or as a daughter of the king, Abba, Abba and your heart will be released, you'll be free. 
Have you ever done that? Have you thrown yourself on his goodness? You know, in August 28th here in just a handful of weeks, we're gonna have after this uh, 1045 service coming up, we're gonna have a baptism and barbecue as a whole community. We wanna invite you to that. It's gonna be out in the parking lot. It's gonna be a great celebration. And one of the things we're gonna be doing is welcoming men, women, and children down into the waters of baptism. And do you know what baptism is? It's a celebration of the goodness of Christ. That's what it is. Whereby men and women say, Jesus, I need you and I want you in my life. And so if you've never publicly thrown yourself on the goodness of Christ, if you've never confessed your faith in him through baptism, on the back of your connection cards, if you have your program that we gave you, there's a place that says, I'd love to be baptized or I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. And if today as you hear the gospel, you're saying, I've always been leaning on my goodness and not his. My heart has never been set free, but now I begin to see. If that's true of you, just mark that. Man, I'd love to talk about a relationship with Jesus and we will follow up with you. You tear that off put it in the offering plate here in just a moment. I want to finish by encouraging you and just getting very practical in this way for the church. How do you know when the gospel is going deep in your life? How do you know when it's beginning to change you? Let me encourage you with two ways that you'll know. Two ways the gospel will always be playing its way out in our lives. In verse 20, Luke writes, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and he immediately began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying, he indeed is the son of God. You catch that? He immediately began preaching. The gospel completely transforms the trajectory of his life and he goes in an instant from becoming the greatest opponent to Jesus to becoming the greatest proponent of the gospel. The enemy of the cross begins, becomes the friend of Christ and he goes out into the streets declaring that Jesus is indeed the son of God. How do you know the gospel is going to work in your heart deeply? How do you know? Friends, it will change the direction of your life two specific ways, it will forever change the way that you see people. It'll change the way you see people. You see, if God can accomplish that miracle in Paul's life, then ask yourself, who is beyond the reach of his mercy? If, if God can take a man who was trying to kill Christians and Paul in an instant began loving and encouraging Christians to fall more in love with Jesus, then can't he also do that in the lives of people around you? When the gospel goes deep, it will forever change the way you see people. Listen, don't ever write someone off in your life. You know that, get, get into mind right now the person who is most difficult in your life because we all have them, don't we? Who is it? A parent, a spouse, a boss, a neighbor. And your tendency is going to be to write them off as beneath the mercy of Christ, as beyond the mercy of Christ. Christ's mercy could never catch up with them and change them. But don't you see, if Jesus didn't write Saul off and he didn't write me off and he doesn't write you off, then who are we to say that he's going to write someone else off? Never throw people short of the mercy of Christ who takes the worst in my life and somehow by his power makes it beautiful. And he does the same for you. So rather than becoming an opponent of that person, 
what would happen today if you began to become a proponent of what Jesus can do for them? What would happen this morning if instead of laying awake in bed at night and thinking ill thoughts of them, you began to pray for them? That God would shape and soften their hearts like he is doing in your life. What would happen? What would happen if you said, I'm not going to get in the way of Christ's mercy coming to bear in the lives of of the people who are difficult in my life, but what would happen if I began to bring their mercy to bear by encouraging and loving, supporting, giving? The reason we ask you day in and day out to pray one prayer, God, would you give me one person to love with your love today is because we believe that God can do the unimaginable if we'll simply open our lives to begin to pray the unexpectable in their lives. God, give me one person to love. Don't ever sell people short because Jesus never sold you short. When the gospel goes to work, it changes the way that you see people. And finally, it changes the way that you see the world. I want to close by giving you some encouragement, and I'm going to speak for a moment into all the events that have been happening over the last several weeks in our country and around the world. But before I do, I just want to say this. I will never use the stage as a political platform. I will never speak preference from the stage. When I encourage here in just a moment, there's a good chance that one of you will hope or many of you will hope that I say something specific and somehow I'm not going to say exactly what you want me to hear, but don't take offense at that. Please listen to my heart because what I want to seek out is how would Jesus speak in to the events of our country and world if he were here? And so I pour through the scriptures to try to identify what his heart is for times like these. I just want to encourage you. Do you realize that in six weeks, in this series that we began. We've had tragedies in Orlando and in Dallas and Baton Rouge and a political coup in Turkey and a train slashing in Germany and a terror attack in Nice, France and countless others probably that I haven't mentioned and one political convention with enough name calling and reputation smearing to last a lifetime and we still have one more to go. Our tendency during times like this is going to be to argue over solutions and say things like, if we can just get the right leader in the Oval Office who will fix our judicial system or secure our borders or pass the right budget reforms in order to improve our military protection or our intelligence, then the world will be a safer place. We come up with all these solutions. Don't hear me wrong. Do not hear me wrong. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't use leaders. I'm not suggesting that law is not important. I'm not suggesting that security is not significant. Of course those things are. I'm not suggesting that God can't use a gathering of human leaders set on his heart to transform places. That's what this whole series is about. But here's what I am saying. Laws and budgets and political processes are wonderful things. They can be wonderful things, but they have never changed a human heart. And some of us this morning are putting our hope in the wrong source. 
And we're banking the foundation and the confidence on, of our lives on someone else's intelligence or wisdom or wit to get the right people around the table and work toward compromise and reform. But as a result, in seasons like this, your heart is overwhelmed with fear and worry and concern. Through Paul's story, we see that underneath all of the bitterness and name-calling and prejudice and hatred and senseless acts of violence is a human heart that does not need to be reformed, but a human heart that needs to be transformed. My heart does not need to be reformed. It needs to be transformed. I am like Paul in Romans 7 who says, I know what I should do. The problem is I don't do it. The problem isn't that I don't know what I shouldn't do. The problem is I know it and I do it anyway. The problem in this world is me. The problem in my home is me. The problem in my community starts with me. And if not for the mercy of Christ in me, then I would be the same man who has the same seed at work in my heart that if watered the right way is capable of carrying out the most atrocious acts in this world. And yet Jesus has mercy on me. And in the same way, if he's at work in your life, there will be a humility to say, Jesus, have mercy on me. What I need, what we need, what our world needs is someone who has the power and kindness to bring about true and lasting transformation in our hearts. Someone who can turn killers into shepherds of sheep. Someone who can take a hater and turn them into a lover of people. Someone who, like Saul, can take a destroyer and turn them into kind, compassionate, selfless men and women who live their lives for the good of others and the glory of God. This is what Jesus does, which is why in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I believe in the power of the gospel, which is the salvation of men and women who believe. And if we believe in and esteem the power of the gospel, then we will not put our hope in the might of men, but in the power of our king. And when your heart begins to rest in your king, you can support government leaders, whether you agree with them or not. You can pray, pray for officials, whether you support the direction or not, because it's biblical. But as you do, you can get your hands and feet dirty in the world around you, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your workplace. And you become a man and woman of restoration, of reconciliation. You become a man or a woman of compassion and peace. You become a man or a woman who expresses joy and confidence in Christ in spite of what's going on in the world. You become an encourager to those who are downtrodden. You become a giver to those who are lacking. You become a supporter to those who are hurting. You become a lifter to those who are falling. You come alongside and you love because you serve a king who came alongside and loved you and me when we were in the dirt and at our worst. And by his mercy, we plead, Jesus, will you use our lives to transform our world? Start with us, start with me. And I want to invite you to pray that with me right now. Not Jesus, fix our world. Of course we pray fix our world. But we also pray start with me, use me. And will you be so bold right now to pray that alongside me? That we might do good to others for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do cry out right now to come and heal 
and fix our broken land. But we know in order to do that, that you've got to start with us. You've got to heal and fix our broken hearts. We ask you to heal and fix our broken homes. We ask you to heal and fix our broken attitudes. We ask you to restore the brokenness in our lives and make us more like you, Jesus. We acknowledge that apart from you, Christ, we are not worthy right now to stand in your presence, but because of you, Jesus, we come confidently, boldly, without fault and blameless in your sight. And we say thank you. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would use our lives somehow by your spirit to have a world-impacting and make a world-shaping difference in our world today, in our life. By your grace, we pray. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.